The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. Let's go ahead and take our Bibles. We're going to go to the book of Mark. As you're turning there, um, your Bible might actually start to naturally lay open to the book of Mark. Now we've been here for over a year, and we'll be here for several more months um, until we finish it up in Mark chapter 16. But as we get started uh, today, I want to get us thinking about um, just kind of a perhaps silly but certainly um, practical uh, issue. Um, I have a propensity to use the wrong tool to do a job. Anybody else? I don't know what it is about me, but ever since I was a kid, I had this, this tendency to use the wrong tool for a job. I remember... I couldn't have been older than six or seven, and we went outside on a very cold morning like this was, but, but there was ice on the windshield. It wasn't super thick, but it was definitely thicker than what the windshield wipers could take care of. And so uh, we were getting ready to go to school, and my dad hadn't come out yet, and being a, a boy, you know, which is male, even at six or seven years old, I knew that there was a task to be done, and I knew that I was the man for the job. And so instead of looking for the right tool, which would have been an ice scraper, I looked around for what was available, and I saw a piece of roofing shingle laying on the uh, asphalt. And so thinking, brilliant idea, well, brilliant idea, I picked up the roofing shingle, I took it to the ice, and I just started scraping that ice off, and I just thought, I am absolutely the most brilliant man alive right now. Well, you probably uh, know what happened next. My father walks out the door, and uh, my hiney turns red, and uh, the ice was gone, but the windshield was covered in scratches. I wish I could say that my youthful ignorance uh, was a period, or my ignorance of using the wrong tool was a, a youthful period, but unfortunately it was not. I remember in 2004, after we were married, I was 24, 25 years old, uh, it came time to change oil in the car, and I had this big Buick. You haven't seen it. It's still down in Lynchburg, but this big Buick, and uh, normally I uh, would change oil, no big deal, but I, I didn't have enough money to go to Jiffy Lube, and I needed to do it fast, and so I just ran and grabbed some oil over at Walmart, and uh, too poor to go to Jiffy Lube means that I was too poor to buy a really cool hydraulic jack, and so I knew that I had to get the car up because we had put a new engine in it and the car was too low to just reach under like I used to. And so I, I, I said, well, what, what do I have available here? Well, I knew I had the jack in the trunk, so I got the jack out and I jacked it up. But I was wise enough to know not to get under the car with just the car jack from the trunk. So what do I do? I look around. I improvise, right? Well, there was some cinder block there. And so somebody knows where this is headed. I just heard a, oh, <laughs> So I put the car under some center block and both the, the front end, both, side, both ends of the car, the whole front end is up on center block. I get under, I change oil, I drain the plugs, I you know, put the new filter on. I crawl out thinking that I'm giving MacGyver a run for his money. And as soon as I crawl out, slam, the car falls to the ground and the concrete um, uh, center blocks were nothing more than dust. I got the oil changed. Now it was time to change my britches. I almost lost my life that day. The oil was changed. I was using the wrong tool to do the job. I remember a story I read not too long ago in Florida where this woman calls the fire department. You're like, where's Michael at? Uh, You'll like this, Michael. Uh, This woman calls the fire department because there's a snake in her backyard. 
And so junior firefighters show up first. Okay, these guys that are very green, haven't been around the block very long. And, and so they don't know if it's poisonous or not. And so they thought, you know what? We, we should just devise a scheme, devise a plan to where we, because we don't know if it's poisonous or not. We don't, we don't want to get bitten. So, so let's put a plan together. Well, here's their plan. From a distance, they doused the snake with gasoline and then threw fire onto it to light it on fire. Well, not desiring the present conditions, the snake took off for the closest brush pile to get refuge. Well, this was where, did I say? This was in Texas. Texas, it's dry. So immediately the brush pile catches, catches fire, the brush pile catches fire, and the brush pile being right next to the house catches the house of this poor lady on fire, and this lady is standing there watching a fire-ridden snake crawling into her bush pile, catching her house on fire. The junior firefighters later, they were like, man, lucky, lady, you're lucky that we were here because we put the house fire out really, really quick. <laughs> uh, the snake was dead, but the house was burnt, using the wrong tool to do the job. Now, what happens when we get to a little bit more serious issues of using the wrong tool for a job. I bet that each one of us have, in some way, shape, form, or fashion, have used the wrong tool for a job. I hate it when April uses her teeth to open things, like jars, like mason jars that are sealed. Pop it up. I just think that her teeth are going to shatter or something. I know you're thinking, like, well, dude, aren't you the guy that put your car on cinder blocks? I know. But, but there's just something about that. I just, it just I can't stand it. We, guys, we've probably all used pocket knives to trim our fingernails, right? You know, it might work for a little bit, but then they make fingernail clippers for a reason. Whether it's using pens to stir coffee or scissors to tighten flathead screws, we've all probably used the wrong tool to do a job. Sometimes it works out well, sometimes it doesn't. Have you ever used dish soap in your dishwasher? Wrong tool for the job. Ever put diesel fuel into your gas tank? Ever picked up glass with your toes and ended up in the ER? Have you ever put a roof on your shed without having somebody there to hold your ladder? Many times we use the wrong tools and and, and as a result, it hurts. Sometimes it's humorous. Sometimes it hurts and there's pain. What happens when we get beyond just the simple, silly, mechanical jobs of scraping ice and changing oil, and we get into the more emotional and mental and spiritual jobs of just trying to survive life? What about when, when we, we are just trying to survive and make it through another day? What, what about when we're just trying to keep your husband or wife from getting mad at you Again. What about the emotional and mental and spiritual task of actually enjoying life and not simply enduring it? What are the right tools for these jobs? But bigger than even those, and those are big, what about the job of making God happy with you? What about the job of actually being at peace with the creator of the universe? What about that job? Where do we even start trying with that one? What tool is the right tool for actual union with the Father. How do I know that what I'm doing or, or, or what I've been doing or in doing now is what I'm supposed to be doing to make this thing happen? You see, if we use our pocket knives to trim our fingernails, worst case is we slice our finger. 
that's bad, but we can heal from that. But listen, church, what if we spend our whole lives using the wrong tool for the job of finding life, of finding joy, of finding rest, of finding peace? I'm glad you asked. Because today in Mark 14, I think we're going to see a window into this reality. This tool that God has created to do the job of uniting us to him. You see, Jesus has been ministering for three and a half years by this point. He's been explaining the reality of this new covenant that's coming and is based on his death and not based on the Old Testament system of animal sacrifices. But this message was not received well at all by those who were protecting the Old Testament temple systems. They wanted Jesus dead. And we've seen this the last several weeks if you've been with us. If you haven't, feel free to go to our website and look at the podcast or Listen to the podcast. So we pick up in verse 26. And this is a very familiar passage of Scripture. In fact, the rest of what we're going to see in Mark is going to be very, very familiar. But I hope that because we're going to take it in small chunks at a time, my prayer is that the Spirit of truth now in us will reveal to us, to us things that perhaps we never saw before regarding the work of Jesus. Last week, Richard talked about verse 22 through 25, where Jesus makes it crystal clear to his disciples that he was going to die. He broke the bread, and he handed it, saying, this is my body broken. And it was secured by the death, his death, his blood, the blood of the new covenant, and that any who would believe in him would be a part of this. And they were eating the Passover meal. And so they were full, full of food, full of wine. And against that background, we get to verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. If you're new with us, we kind of look at Scripture a little bit, and then we talk about it, and we look at some more, and we talk about it, and then we wrap it all up at the end. And so verse 26 says, they sung a hymn, and they went out to the Mount of Olives. Again, got to get this picture. They're full of food. They're full of wine, and they go out for a walk. They walk out of the city towards a place called the Mount of Olives. And, and why is this called the Mount of Olives? Well, it's a genius name for this place because it's a really tall hill, like a mount, and at, on the top of the hill, they have an orchard of olive trees. So it's called the Mount of Olives. Makes sense. And so while they're walking towards Mount of Olives, Jesus drops some tragic news on his disciples. Verse 27, please pay attention. Jesus says to them, you all will fall away. You will all fall away. For it is written... And if you want to write in your Bible, Zechariah 13, because this is where it's written in the Old Testament. Zechariah 13, it's, it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, falling away. Verse 28, but after I am raised, Jesus adds, after I'm raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. So Jesus straight up tells his followers that what's about to happen this night and over the next 18 hours or so, is so extreme that his followers who have been faithfully following him for some three years, what they're going to experience is so extreme that they're going to desert him. Before we get to Peter's reaction in, in the next verse, I want us to again to look at who it is that strikes the shepherd. God the Father is the one in Zechariah 13 who is speaking. The Father strikes the shepherd who is Jesus. Jesus is the shepherd. 
So again here, Jesus makes it clear that what we're going to experience over the next few Sundays in chapter 14 and chapter 15, this is the working out of the eternal plan of God. And Jesus makes it clear that the plan of God is for you, the followers, the sheep, these 12 men or so, to flee, to run. The plan of God is for the shepherd alone, the anointed one alone, to be hanging on the cross. There was a single cross next to two thieves, not a single cross surrounded by a band of disciples. The, the prophecy, the prediction, the guarantee of the Father is that Jesus and Jesus alone will be carrying and experiencing this wrath that's going to be poured out on him. This is so important because we're going to come back to it in a second. But Jesus says he's not going to stay dead. He says, after I rise, I'll meet you again back north up in Galilee. But this is too much for Peter, okay? Now, I know we, we give Peter a hard time at times, right? But you've got to admire his his zeal. And this is a passionate guy. Peter says, now listen to what Peter says. This is in verse 29. (laughs) Peter says, even if they all fall away, I will not. You catch that? I mean, Peter is saying, you know what, Jesus, I don't blame you for thinking they will abandon you, that they'll be offended, that they'll fall away, but not me. Them? Sure. But not me. I hear Peter even in his mind saying, like, you know, I've even questioned their loyalty, especially that guy Bartholomew. Like, I mean, what's he up to? But, but not me. I will never fall away. In verse 30, Jesus says to Peter, he says, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now listen, it's one thing to desert quietly, It's one thing to silently slip out the back door, but Jesus is saying that Peter is going to desert him stealthily. Peter is going to open the same, uh, sorry, he's not going to desert him stealthily, sorry. Peter's going to open up the same mouth that he's using right now to say that he'll never leave Jesus. Peter's going to open up that same mouth and before sunrise three times say that he never knew Jesus. He's saying right now he'll never leave him. Before sun comes up, he'll say three times that he never knew him preposterous, Peter thinks. But this is preposterous. Peter's thinking, I would never do that. In fact, Peter again opens up the same mouth that Jesus says is going to deny him three times. And he emphatically says in verse 31, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. In saying this, Peter is committing his body to Jesus's body. He is saying, if you really are going to die tomorrow, then I'm going to die tomorrow. Peter is saying, I don't care what Zechariah 13 says. I don't care what the prophecy is. I don't care what the plan of God is. I'm going to participate in this thing because it's my responsibility to participate in your atoning work. The rest of the group chimes in. I'm sure they didn't appreciate Peter like calling them out like, you know, those guys, I understand, right? And I'm sure they didn't want to sound like cowards. And so the rest of the group chimes in that say, they all said the same thing. So you have this group of men, 11 or more, I'm not really sure, but at least 11 of these men are pledging their lives to Jesus. Get this imagery. As they're walking towards the Mount of Olives, Judas is walking towards the temple leadership to arrange the time to betray Jesus. These disciples are pledging with their words that they'll never desert him. Judas is walking towards the temple to actually betray him. 
I can imagine that these 11 disciples are stewing in in their anger over what Judas has decided to do. And in that full emotion, and these are guys, so I'm sure in the plethora of testosterone, they all pledged their lives to Jesus. I think it's finally sunk into them that something terrible is going to happen. And these men, they're dedicating their bodies to the cause. They're saying, Jesus, if you die, we die. We're in this together. Sounds noble, doesn't it? But is this what God had created these men to do? Is this why Jesus had called them to follow him? Was it God's plan for these men to actively participate in Jesus' death, to be a part of the atonement for sin? Were these disciples created to die with Jesus? It sounds to me like they believe that they are the right tool for the job. It sounds like to me that they think that their whole purpose in being a part of Jesus' band of followers is for them to participate equally with Jesus in his death for the sin of mankind. Well, let's continue. Go to verse 32 with us. Scripture says that they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with them, that is, he he left everyone, and he went a little bit further into the garden. He took with him a little further into the garden, Peter, James, and John. And the Bible says that he began to be greatly distressed. That word is the idea he became terrified at what was coming. He became troubled, Mark writes. And and this word in the original language has the idea of, of a weightiness, of of a heaviness beginning to settle on Jesus. In fact, Jesus says to them, to Peter, James, and John, he says, my soul, this is verse 34, my soul is very sorrowful. And this is the idea that that my soul is surrounded by grief. Jesus is saying that his soul is, is encompassed by sorrow. He's encircled with pain, even to death. Meaning there's no way out of this. I'm surrounded by this grief. I'm surrounded by this heaviness. I'm surrounded by this pain, and it's going to result in my death. And Jesus says, remain here and watch. So he left the majority of the disciples there. He went a little bit further into the garden, left Peter, James, and John. And then he, he says, remain here. And verse 35 says, going a little bit further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it be possible, the hour might pass from him. Verse 36, he said, Abba, Father, if, uh, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Guys, it's, just, it's too easy for us just to fly past these five verses and not get a picture of what's happening. For those of you who've seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, this scene in Mark 14, verse 32, is where that movie starts. The agonizing reality of what is about to happen on the cross is starting to physically take its toll on Jesus. This garden called Gethsemane is where they're sitting and praying is at the foot of the Mount of Olives. So when harvest time would come, the workers would pick all the olives from the olive trees up on the hill and they would roll them downhill using gravity to this garden called Gethsemane. It was in this garden where the workers would press the olives and out of the olives, out of pressing the olives, the precious olive oil from the inside would burst forth. 
They did this by placing the olives on a flat surface. And then they had this stone wheel that was heavy and very, very large. They would begin to wheel the stone around the flat surface and between the flat hard surface and this wheel that's rolling over them, the olives would be smushed, would be crushed, and the precious olive oil would burst forth. The olive oil would run down, they would collect it, and they'd sell it. But the olive oil wouldn't be produced without the crushing of the olive by the wheel. So this is where they're praying. This is where Jesus is in this garden where they press out olives. So perhaps even leaning against one of these large stone presses, Jesus is saying that he is surrounded by grief. Mark says that he became terrified and heavy with this weight of this cup that's coming. The reality of what's about to happen is beginning to rest heavily, to weigh heavily on Jesus. Just as the olive oil was pressed out, the very life of Jesus is beginning to be pressed out by the weight of the hour that is coming and the cup that is at hand. Jesus even prays that this cup, that this hour pass from him. In fact, in Luke's account of this same event, in Luke's gospel, Luke says that the pressure on Jesus was so great that what is called hematidrosis occurred. Hematidrosis is a rare but real medical condition where the stress level is so great in an individual that the capillaries in the sweat glands burst. And instead of just sweat pouring out, blood comes through the veins instead. I remember my grandfather, when my grandmother died back in the mid-80s, my grandfather's blood pressure was above 250 for most of the day, which is very high, but no sweating of blood. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, I read the report, that his blood pressure when he died of a massive heart attack was over 300 when he died, but no hematidrosis from him. Imagine with me, Imagine just how much pressure is on Jesus in this moment for the capillaries under his skin to burst and blood to actually come forth. But we've got to take a time out here real quick. And we've got to ask the question, what is the cause of this pressure? What is the source of this heaviness? Many would say, well, Walt, he's about to be crucified. Many would say, well, Walt, he's about to have nails driven through his hands and, and he's about to have a crown of thorns on his head. That's a lot of pressure coming. And so he's realizing that his death is imminent. Well, I, I could certainly understand having not one iota of a desire to be crucified, that that could certainly be very stressful. But we know that over the last 2,000 years that Christians have been brutally murdered, even crucified and while doing that, even being burned alive, they're actually singing hymns of praise to the Father. Are these martyrs more courageous than our Lord? Was it just the cross that was causing this heaviness? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. It would seem to me to suggest that the pressure that Jesus is under is not simply from dying, but it's from this cup this cup of judgment, this cup of wrath that the Father is about to pour out on His Son. I think this pressure is from the fact that for the very first time in all of eternity past, the Father and the Son will not be in perfect union. 
You see, because the son became our sin, the Holy Father had to turn his back on his son for the first time ever. Jesus will cry out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know the answer? The answer to that question is because the Father cannot and will not ever be united to anything that is not as holy as he is. The moment that all of our sin was placed on Jesus as our final sacrifice, the Father withdrew his fellowship and his union from the Son. And this cup that Jesus is referring to was poured out in judgment on Jesus. This action of the Son becoming sin, this action of of the Father crushing the Son who has now become sin, this action is what not just the Father crushing the Son, but it's the action of the Father crushing sin. Because Jesus had now become sin. The destruction of the Son was the Father's destruction of sin. However dead Jesus was after the cross, that is how dead your sin is before the Father. However lifeless Jesus was, who had become sin and received the judgment for that sin, however lifeless he was after the cross, that's how lifeless your sin now is before the Father. Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. As a believer, to say that it's possible for your sin to still hinder you from, your, from, from the presence of the Father in any way is to say that the work on the cross didn't work. He was broken and spilled out. And every single sin that was placed on him eradicated. God the Father was, wasn't just some sadistic being trying to gain simple pleasure from watching his son suffer. The pleasure that the father took that we've been talking about the last several weeks, this pleasure that the father took in in crushing his son was the pleasure of putting to end every single sin that separated God from his people, that separated God from you. This was the only way, and Jesus knew it. Jesus knew that this was going to be the worst moment in his eternal existence, yet at the same time, Jesus knew that this was going to be the best moment of his eternal existence. You see, Hebrews chapter 12 says that Jesus endured this encompassing grief. He endured this weight of pressure. He endured this cup of judgment because of the joy that was set before him. What was the joy? It was the joy of obliterating sin. The joy of resulting in the Father's union now with you. This is awesome. Jesus endured this cup. He endured this hour so the Father could justly put an end to sin and now unite himself to you who believe. This is awesome. This is life. So against the agony of this pressure beginning to fall on Jesus, the reality of what's about to happen to him, this pressure that's already causing his his soul to grieve. Verse 37, Jesus comes back to Peter, James, and John. He comes back and he finds them, what? Sleeping. These men have just pledged their bodies to the flames of death, and they're sleeping. (laughs) Remember? They were full of food and full of wine, and now they're sleeping. Jesus says to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? 
Could you not watch just one hour? Watch and pray that you will not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, Jesus says, but the flesh is weak. Jesus doesn't direct his comments, his words at Peter, James, and John. Why? They were asleep too, weren't they? I think that Jesus is making a huge point, a huge louder than life point here, that Peter was the one who was leading the cause in this whole mantra of if you die, we die, right? Peter was the one who, who thought he was going to be the tool of God to bring about God's perfect will in this new kingdom. Peter was the one who said, you know what, I don't care what Zechariah 13 says, I don't care what the Father says, I'm going to be a part of this. And so Jesus rebukes Peter. He directs his rebuke at Peter to drill it into Peter's head, saying, Bud, listen, this is a lot bigger than you could ever imagine, Peter. You and your willpower, you say that you'll die with me, but you can't even say awake with me. And so Jesus, in verse 39, he goes away to pray again. And he says the same words, Father, take this cup from me. Not my will, though, but your will. And verse 40, he again comes and he finds them, you say it, sleeping for their eyes were heavy and they didn't know how to answer him strike two right these men who couldn't have been more passionate minutes before in their zeal and their fleshly fervor are out cold these men who just shouted loyalties to jesus are now sawing logs while he prays mark uses a lot of irony throughout the book of of this accounting of jesus's life and we talked a lot, of, a lot about it, but don't miss this irony. The Son of God is beginning to experience the heaviness of sin, the heaviness of God's cup of wrath against that sin. And these men who have just pledged their lives to Jesus, who think that they are going to be a part of the whole plan of God to eradicate sin, they are asleep due to the heaviness of their eyelids. Jesus suffering the heaviness of your and my guilt and sin, they are suffering the heaviness of their eyelids. They're willing, their they're, they're, they're spirit, they, they want to be a part of it, but their flesh is just too weak. Verse 41, he comes to them a third time and says, are you still sleeping? Are you still taking your rest? Strike three. The rooster hasn't crowed three times, but Peter and his pal have caught Z's three times. Jesus says, it's enough. It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise. Let's go. Look. See. Behold. My betrayer is at hand. We'll pick up next week with Richard where Judas is walking up to Jesus to kiss him. So there's even more irony in here. These 11 or so men have pledged their lives to protecting Jesus, to even die for him. Yet they are so weak in their flesh that they've spent the last few hours sleeping. But Judas has spent the last few hours fervently working with the temple leaders to devise a plan to betray Jesus. The men who are pledged their life to Jesus are sleeping. The men who are trying to destroy Jesus are working. It's irony. So where are we going to land this thing this morning? Our time is running out. What do we possibly think that we can glean from this event 2,000 years ago, this event of Jesus and his disciples in Gethsemane that could practically be applied to our life today? Well, out of the plethora of possibilities of application, this is what I want us to think about. I think these disciples, as I've tried to lay out, have developed the idea that they were God's tool of choice to usher in this new covenant that Jesus had been teaching. 
They could care less what God the Father said in Zechariah 13. They said, we will never leave. We are a part of this. We have got to do this work of bringing in this kingdom. I think they had this idea that they were created by God and chosen by Jesus to fulfill the mission that Jesus had come. You say, well, how can you say that? Well, I think that when Jesus reveals to them what Zechariah wrote, that they're going to desert him, they think that Jesus has lost his marbles. They think this is a preposterous idea. They, they, They think they would never leave and desert and abandon him. They thought that they were there to ensure that this mission happened. I really think that they thought that they were the right tool of God in starting this new covenant. But I see the whole point of these verses shouting out loudly that it is impossible for these mere men to be God's tool for ensuring the new covenant because they can't even stay awake to pray. Jesus points it out to them. He says, your attitude, your spirit is willing, your willpower is willing, but your flesh is just too weak. You can't do this. They were not created to do the work that Jesus had come to do. Now, not to to get too far ahead of ourselves, but they do desert Jesus. In fact, a couple of members of the religious elite are the ones who come and take Jesus' body off of the cross. It wasn't these 11 men. It was men that had spent time hating Jesus. These men desert Jesus. Again, it's more irony. But the whole point is that no matter how willing or how passionate or how best intended or how many times they came forward in a worship service to rededicate their lives or to sign a pledge card, these disciples were not the chosen tool of God to usher in the new kingdom. Jesus and Jesus alone was the right tool for that work. The, the work needed to be done was for a perfect man to have all of our sin placed on him. And that perfect man was to be crushed, therefore crushing sin itself. But there was no perfect man. In fact, since Adam and Eve fell into sin shortly after creation, no man was worthy of this work of atoning sin. But God's eternal plan that existed even before creation, was for his son to enter into the human race as a baby. 100% God, 100% man. This baby would grow to be a man, having every opportunity to sin, but never sinning even one time. Thus, he perfectly fulfilled the requirement of God. This God-man Jesus, he had every single sin of yours placed on him while he hung on the cross suspended between heaven and earth. The full cup of God's righteous wrath against that sin was poured out on Jesus and he suffered alone and died. He was crushed and with him all your sin was crushed that separated you from the Father. Jesus's life ended and with it also the reality of your sin between you and the Father ended. Jesus was the right tool not the disciples, and listen, and not you. Our journey marker today, and if you're new with us, this is kind of, let's wrap all this up into a simple thought. You were not created to do what Jesus has already done. You were not created to do what Jesus has already done. You were not created to remove your sin from between you and the Father. Jesus has already done that. You were not created to carry the burden of your sin and iniquity to the Father. Jesus has already done that. 
You were not created to endure the judgment for your sin by the Father. Jesus has already done that. You were not created to assist Jesus in any way in the removal of your sin. Jesus has already done it. You were not created to make amends for even future sin against the Father because Jesus has already done that. You were not created to be judged for the sin of yours by the Father because Jesus has already been judged. You were not created to do what Jesus has already done. He became your sin. He took your place. He was crushed by the Father. He was broken and spilled out. He hung where you should have hung. He paid the price that you could never. He satisfied the wrath of God on your behalf. He endured your judgment. He carried your sin far away. He became what you were so that you could become what he is, a son of the living God. So what were you created for? If you're saying, well, if I wasn't created to, to manage my sin, if I wasn't created to remove what's already been removed, th- then what was I created for? Now listen to me clearly. You were created to receive. So what do you mean by that? John 3.16. Who's the lover? God. Who's the loved world whosoever believes god is the lover you are the object of that love all my english teachers the world is the direct object of his love you were created to receive the affections of the father to receive sonship by the father you were created to receive union with the father you were created to receive new life in Christ, to receive forgiveness in Christ. You were created to receive what you can never in a million years earn on your own righteousness. You were created to receive holiness. You were created to receive perfection, receive splendor. You were created to receive grace. You're the object of God's mercy. You receive, Ephesians chapter 1, every spiritual blessing. You receive everything that Jesus is himself. Listen. You were created to receive God. In the new covenant, because of what Jesus did, you get God. You are his. He is yours. He is your God. You are his people. He now wipes away every tear. I I heard this said one time that the Christian life is a life lived with a growing awareness of another who is Jesus now living through you. As our band makes their way up, you might rightly ask a simple question of, well, weren't we created to do good, to do good works? And, and the answer is yes, of course we were. But how can you do good when there's nothing good in your flesh? As Craig said just a little bit ago, the only thing good that could possibly come out of you is Christ who is now in you. We must see this, church. It isn't our love. It isn't our joy that we manufacture. It isn't our peace, our patience that we stir up. It isn't our kindness that we really, really with willpower really try to have. It isn't our gentleness that we try to create from our flesh. It's Christ's love. It's his joy, his peace, his patience, his gentleness, etc. They are fruit of his spirit, not us. We were created 
to be the instrument of the Father for Christ himself to now live through us. You see, we can be like the disciples and we can work out of sheer willpower. Our, our attitudes, our willpower, it can be strong, but our flesh is too weak. So if we think like them, if we think that we are the tool of God and to work out of our own power, then we are going to be just as frustrated, just as angry, just as unable to give an answer as they were. But as we see that Jesus was the right tool to do God's work of ending sin and of uniting us to the Father, then we can realize that our role is simply to receive to receive freedom, to receive freedom from judgment, freedom from sin, freedom from condemnation, freedom from even death. We receive life in Christ. We receive love, forgiveness, blessings. As we see this, as we believe this, as our minds are renewed to this reality that he's done the work and we are the recipients of his work, then Christ in us begins to flow through us into this dark world. We were not created to do what Jesus has already done, namely the forgiveness of sins. We can't do it. We weren't created to do it. We were not created to do something that he had already done, but we were created to receive his life, to receive him in us in order that he may live his life through us. That, saints, is good news. We're going to end our gathering this morning with a song simply entitled, Everything. And you have the opportunity to come and get one of these angel trees. Make sure you take one of these cards that are, that are with it to put into the you know, box when you wrap it up so that they, they have an invitation to come and, and hear the good news of Jesus here at Life Journey. But before we leave, this song that we're about to sing, it declares our absolute need for Jesus to be our everything. He's not just the guy that we go to when things are rough. He's not the guy that we just lean on when we die. But he is our everything. The more we see this, the more that we embrace this as a church, that Jesus is our everything, the brighter his life will shine through us to our neighbors and to the nations. The more we think that we have to do the work that Jesus has already come to, to manage sin and, and to remove sin from between us and the Father, then the more frustrated, the more discouraged, and even the more sinful we'll actually become. We weren't created to do what Jesus has already done. The disciples were not there to participate in the atoning work of Jesus, and neither are you. You are here created to receive his grace, to be the objects of his affection. Father, we thank you so much for this reminder as Jesus, the weight of the world, the weight of judgment is coming down on him. God, what a reminder to us that he is your chosen one. He is your chosen tool to put an end to sin. Daniel said 490 years will pass and I will put an end to iniquity, an end to sin, and usher in everlasting righteousness. And on the cross, we saw that happen. An end to everything that was placed on Jesus that stood between us and you. You crushing Jesus was you crushing sin. 
So Father, help us to grow. Help us to see that our job, our work, our role is not to try to do something that Jesus has already done. God, you have created us to be the objects of your affection, the recipients of your grace. You've created us to free us from the chains of sin so that we can be free in Christ. God, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, doesn't believe in Jesus as their Savior, Father, today, Father, I pray that your Spirit would open up their eyes to see the truth of Jesus. That they need Jesus, that they could never do on their own what Jesus has come to do. We must believe in Jesus. But Father, I pray for those here who are believers, who continue like the disciples thinking that we somehow participate in the removal of sin from us, between us and you. God, help us to see that we were not created to do what Jesus has already done. But that we now rest in this love, this mercy. We receive life. The life of Christ. As Paul said, we have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live. But it's not us who live. It's Christ who lives in us, through us. God, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.